First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, and you turn with me to Job chapter 1, Job chapter 1. Today we are kicking off a five-week journey through the book of Job that we're calling Shattered. And we're actually starting this series a week earlier than we had originally planned. And the reason for that is I met this past week with a few of our uh, pastors. And as we talked and, and prayed about that, we just felt that the story of Job speaks so clearly and so perfectly to what I believe we've all been thinking about over the course of these last few weeks. Because Job is the story of a man whose whole life was shattered in a single day. And even as we just prayed about a few moments ago, you know, last weekend as we were scurrying about preparing our own houses for the arrival of Hurricane Dorian, our friends in the Bahamas, some of whom are family members of some of you in our church family, uh, were experiencing the full brunt of that terrible storm that sat on top of them for 36 hours, and by now we have all seen the pictures and the videos that have come uh, out of the Bahamas. I know that uh, we have been praying for them, for those in North Carolina as well, and everywhere uh, in the wake of this storm. Uh, I know that we all want to help in some way as well, and I want you to know that preparations are being made for that, and we'll be able to share more with you next week about some of those opportunities that we can get involved in a tangible way, in a practical way, uh, to help those who have been affected by this storm. But I believe that as a result of all that we have seen and experienced over these past couple of weeks, that this subject of human suffering, uh, of lives being shattered, has been on all of our minds. And the book of Job speaks to that. Now, it doesn't speak to it, perhaps, in the way that we would like by giving us all of the answers to all of our questions, but it speaks to us by inviting us into the story of one single man, one good man that had some very, very bad things happen in his life. And so let's read how this story begins, Job 1, verse 1. The Word of God says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. And one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. And his sons would go and feast in their houses each on his appointed day. And would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And so it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? 
For there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Verse 13, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and raided the camels and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Father, we pray today as we think about this story that you have given us in your word, that Lord, you would speak to our hearts, you would speak to the broken places, the shattered places in our heart that only you can get to. Father, we pray that in our suffering, even in the suffering that we don't understand, that we would be able to bring it to you, and to trust in you, to look to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since this is our first week in this book of uh, the Bible, uh, it's important that we know a little bit of the background of this book before we uh, jump into walking through the story together. And, you know, even though the book of Job doesn't show up uh, in your pages of the Old Testament until about halfway through, uh, chronologically, the time period of Job, where it takes place, puts it as one of the earliest books in all of the Bible, as best as we can tell, Job lived uh, around the time of Abraham. And we read about Abraham in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. So J Job lived uh, very, very early. That much we know. Now, we don't know uh, when the book of Job was written, whether it was written immediately after his lifetime or, or many centuries later. We also don't know who wrote the book of Job. It is an anonymous uh, book. Uh, we certainly know that it was not Job himself who wrote it because a large part of the story uh, rests on what Job does not know. The conversations that took place in heaven that he is completely unaware of. And so a lot of other people have been suggested as possible authors for the book of Job. Some have suggested this. Uh, others have suggested Solomon, which I believe may be more likely. Uh, others have been mentioned as well, but the truth is, uh, we don't know who wrote it, but we know that God wanted us to have it. He wanted us to have it in his word. And we also know that this is a 
true story. Now, there are some who contest that, who argue that Job, that the story of Job is merely a myth or a fable. That Job was, Job was not a real person, but we know that that is not the case from other scripture. Because in the Bible, in the book of Ezekiel, as well as in the book of James, in chapter 5, Job is referred to as a real person. And so what we are reading here is uh, the real story of a real person who lived a long time ago. And sadly, uh, everything that we're reading here actually happened to this man in his life. In the first five verses, we are introduced to Job. And the overall picture here is of a good and a godly man. He lived in the land of Uz, which was east of Canaan in the Middle East. And listen to how Job is described in verse 1. It says he was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Blameless, upright, one who feared God, one who shunned or turned away from evil. That doesn't mean that Job was perfect. He admits himself later in this book that he was not a perfect man, but he was a godly man. He was a blameless man. He was a man of integrity. In fact, down in verse 8, God himself says so about Job and says that there wasn't anybody like Job on the earth at that time. What a thing to have God say about a person. Not only was Job godly, but he was also richly blessed in every conceivable way. Verse 2 describes his family. How he was blessed with seven sons and three daughters for a grand total of ten children. And the numbers that are used there are numbers that signify completion. And he was blessed in terms of his full family, but also he was blessed materially. And verse 3 describes that. Now Job lived so early that his wealth was not described as money in his bank account, but instead was described in terms of the livestock that he owned. And you see the numbers there. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, a large household of servants that cared for all of these animals. And so the end of verse 3 really just sums it up and says, Job was the greatest of all of the people in the east. He was the wealthiest man that there was. In verse 4, the narrator kind of cycles back to this picture of Job's family. And what we read here is it wasn't just a big family, it was also a loving family. That all seven of Job's sons lived in their own home. Uh, and apparently they would take turns every night of the week on their appointed day hosting a family meal at their house. So it would be uh, meatloaf Mondays at Joe's house and Taco Tuesdays at Frank's house and so on every night of the week. And they would always invite their three sisters who apparently were unmarried and still lived at home to come to this feast. And again, it's just a picture of a big loving family. And then in verse 5, we read about how Job acted as the priest of his home. How he would offer sacrifices at the end of every week, just in case one of his children had sinned against God and cursed God in their hearts. It's interesting that that specific sin is what Job was concerned about. Because that's precisely what Satan is about to try to get Job to do. To curse God in his heart because of what God allows to happen in Job's life. 
Job makes those sacrifices regularly because he wasn't just concerned about his own spiritual life as the head of his home. He was concerned about the spiritual life of his children as well. And the bottom line is, as you read through this description in verses 1 through 5, you couldn't ask for a more godly individual or a more blessed individual than you find in Job. And that is what makes what is about to happen to Job even the more shocking and the more difficult to understand. Because in verse 6, the scene changes and the narrator transports us to the very throne room of God in heaven. And look again at what it says, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And so this scene is described as a king holding his court with his attendants there. And in this case, his attendants, those who are called the sons of God, are the angels who are coming into God's presence and reporting on all of their activity. And Satan is there as well. Now that doesn't mean that Satan was one of them. It just says that Satan came in among them. And we know from the rest of God's word that Satan is a fallen angel, that he and one-third of the angels rebelled against the Lord. And here this adversary, which is what the name Satan means, comes into God's presence to do what Satan always does, to accuse and to attack God's children. And so in verse 7, God speaks to him and says, Satan, from where do you come from? Of course, God is not asking this question to gain information that he didn't already know. But as one person put it, he is giving Satan an opportunity to state his business and to say out loud the reason why he was there. And Satan responds with this nebulous answer about how he had come from walking around on the earth. And then in verse 8, notice that it is the Lord who brings up the subject of Job. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. The very same description of Job that we read earlier. We're going to come back in a minute to what the Lord specifically said about Job. But for the time being, I want us to notice something else. And this is the first of a few foundational truths about suffering. But I want us to see as we walk through this story together. Here's foundational truth number one. God is on the throne and he is sovereign over all things. That that is the picture of this story. Satan is present, yes, but Satan doesn't walk into God's throne room and take over. Satan doesn't initiate the conversation, nor does he lead it. God is in charge of what is happening from beginning to end, and that's because it is not Satan who is on the throne. It is God. It is our God, and he is the sovereign king over everything. He is sovereign over Job's life. Friends, he is sovereign over your life, and he is sovereign over my life, and he is sovereign over this whole world. And though at times that truth, That God is sovereign may cause us to question and to wonder why our sovereign God allows certain things to take place. It is also a great comfort to know that we are not subject to random chance or fate. But that there is a God who is seated on the throne of the universe and that he is good. 
Again in verse 8, God brings up Job, and he, and he speaks about Job with such love and with such pride. And his, atten- his intent is to hold up Job as an example, to hold him up as an example to Satan and to the demonic world and to all of the angels and, and to all of the universe as, as someone with real, authentic faith. And so he says, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? You know, a good question for us to think about is, whether or not God could say the same thing about you or me. If today God was looking for someone to hold up as an example, could he say, Satan, have you considered my servant and put your name in right there? Have you considered my servant Donna? Have you considered my servant Gary? Have you considered how they're living a blameless life? Have you considered how they turn away from evil, how they fear me? Have you considered them? I don't know how you can answer that question, but by God's grace, is not that the kind of life that we should be aspiring to live? One where God can say, have you considered this person? In verses 9 through 11, Satan replies to the Lord, and he said, sure, God, he, he fears you, but he doesn't fear you for nothing. I mean, look at everything you've done for him. And then in verse 10, he says, look, God, you put a hedge around him. I love that he uses that terminology right there because that, that is, we just have to admit sometimes we're, we are strange people, aren't we? We, we have a Christianese vocabulary and hedge is definitely one of those words, right? And, and I think people who maybe have not grown up in church wonder why in the world we use that language, right? We, we do it when people travel, right? We say, God, I just pray you put a hedge of protection around that person's car, and a non-believer is thinking, why are you asking for shrubbery to be around his Hyundai? I don't understand that. But this is where we get it from, right? We get it from Satan. He says to God, God, you have put a, I'm not saying anything about it. That's where it comes from. But God, you have put a hedge around Job. You have protected him on every side. You have blessed him in every way. You have made it too easy for him, for him to love you and to serve you. And basically, he's saying, God, you, you've just bribed Job. That's the only reason why he serves you the way that he does. But, but God, if you would just take all of that away, well, then you'll see Job's real character. He says, God, then you'll see that Job will curse you to your face. That's another good question for us to consider, isn't it? Do we love God and serve God only because of what God gives us and does for us? Or do we love God and serve God for God? Is God himself enough for us, or are we only in it for the gifts that he provides? That was the accusation that, Job, or that Satan was making against Job. The Lord, who knows the hearts of all, knows that in Job's case, Satan was wrong. He knows that the charge that Satan was making against Job is untrue. And so in order to prove the genuineness of Job's faith and in order to prove in general that it is possible for a man to love God just for God and not for what God provides, God agrees to this test of Job's faith. Notice in verse 12, the Lord doesn't allow Satan to do whatever he wants to. He tells him that he can only take from Job, but he cannot lay a hand on on Job himself. That's the second foundational truth we need to understand. Satan is a real adversary. 
who can accuse us. He seeks to accuse us. He seeks to harm us. But he cannot go one inch beyond what God permits him to do. Again, on the one hand, Satan is not presented in this passage as imaginary or as mythical. He is real. As it says later in Peter's letter, he is on the prowl. He is like a lion seeking whom he may devour. He wants to harm us. He wants to accuse us. Uh, He wants to break down our faith and, if it were possible, to destroy our faith. That's what he tries to do with Peter. That's what he tries to do with Paul. That's what he's still trying to do with us. And so, yes, Satan is like a lion, but he is a lion on a leash. And he can only go as far as the Lord permits. And try as he might, he cannot go one millimeter further than that. Because he is not all powerful, and he is not everywhere present at the same time, and he is not all knowing as the Lord is. He is powerful, but church, compared with our Almighty God, he is puny. And we would do well to never forget it. Here's a third foundational truth, and this truth is so important because we're about to leave this scene in the throne room of heaven. We're about to come back down to earth, and here is the story as we come back down to earth. Things are going on in heaven that affect our lives on earth that we are totally unaware of. In order to understand the story of the book of Job, it is crucial that we remember that we as the readers know something that Job did not have a clue about. And we know that what is about to happen to Job is a result of this conversation that has just taken place in heaven between Satan and God. And essentially this contest that is happening regarding Job's faith and the authenticity of his faith. We know that, but Job has no idea about that. From Job's perspective, one day everything was going along just swimmingly. And the next day everything was gone. And the reality is what Ephesians 6 teaches us is that there is still today a spiritual war taking place all around us. There are many things that are happening in heaven and in the unseen world that we do not have a clue about. And just like Job, we don't always understand why suffering comes into our life. Because very often, like Job, we are in the dark. And we only see a fraction of what is really going on. And we'll talk about this more in a few minutes, but that is really sometimes where the test lies for us. Will we keep on trusting in the Lord even when we're suffering in the dark? Even when we do not understand why? And so with that truth in mind, here is a fourth truth, and we'll spend the majority of the the rest of our time talking about this. Number four, in this broken world, Bad things do happen to good people. And and you know, except for Jesus, what's about to happen to Job is probably the most extreme example of that. The most extreme example of that ever, of bad things happening to a good person. Because I'll tell you, if anybody else in the history of the world has had a day worse than Job's, I'd like to hear about it. Because this is about as bad of a day as a human being can have on the earth. 
After God grants Satan permission to go and afflict Job, in rapid-fire succession, he suffers four tragedies that happen to him one after the next. He barely has time to catch his breath. And I want you to notice with me also when all of this happens to Job. Look at verse 13. It says, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Now, remember how they would go to each of their seven brothers' house on every day of the week. Well, they would start with their oldest brother's house on the first day of the week. What does that mean? It means that Job had just finished making his weekly sacrifice that he made at the end of the week. Job had just made his sacrifice to the Lord. He had just made sure that there was peace between him and God, that there was nothing between him and God, there was nothing between his kids and God. And this just reminds us that everything that is about to happen to Job did not happen to him because of any sin. Because of any unrighteousness on his part, it actually happened to him for the opposite reason. It actually happened to him because of how righteous and how godly he was. It was happening to him because God wanted to put Job's faith on display for everyone to see. And so in verse 14, the first messenger that would be for this day who would come running up to Job with terrible news. This was the first one. And he comes running up and breathlessly he says to Job that the Sabaeans had come, a group of robbers from Africa, and they had come and they had stolen all of Job's donkeys, all of Job's oxen. They had killed all of his servants who were there with the donkeys and the oxen. And this man alone had escaped to come and tell Job about it. And before he is even done talking, a second messenger comes running up in verse 16. And says, Job, a fire came from heaven, probably lightning or perhaps a fire caused by lightning came and burned up all 7,000 of Job's sheep and all of his servants who attended to his sheep. And this man alone escaped to come and tell him. And while that second man was still talking, while the words were still in his mouth, here comes a third man running up to Job with another terrible message. And he says to Job that another group of raiders have come. The Chaldeans have come in three bands. They've taken away all of Job's camels, killed all of his servants who were with them, and this man alone escaped to tell him. And then finally, in verse 18 comes the climactic news, the worst news of all. A fourth messenger comes running up while the third one is still talking and says, Job, all of your sons, all of your daughters were together in their oldest brother's house. And a tornado came and the house fell on the young people and all of them are dead. I know that some of you in this room have experienced the pain of losing a job. I honestly can't imagine. I can't imagine what that pain would be like. But as much as I can't imagine what it would be like to lose one job, can you imagine what it would be like to lose ten? And to lose them on the same day. Ten funerals. A big, happy, full house. Gone. On the same day. And now it was just Job and his wife, all alone, with nothing. And we'll talk about it more next time. But Job's reaction to what happened to him is one for the ages. Look at verse 20. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground and worshipped. 
And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. How amazing, how inspiring that Job's first instinct when he heard of all of this terrible news was to turn to God and worship. And to say to God, God, you give and you take away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. And yet as hard as it is to imagine, all that he had already experienced would not be the end of his suffering. There would be more. Look with me at chapter 2, and we'll read the first eight verses. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without a cause? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Well, Satan does not give up easily. He returns to the throne room of God in heaven, and God asks the same question, where have you been? And Satan gives the same answer, going to and fro on the earth. And then once again, God brings up his servant Job. And much of what he says about Job is the same, except the end of verse 3, he adds this. He says, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without a cause. In other words, the Lord is saying pretty clearly here, my servant Job won round one. Let's all agree about that. You did your worst to him, and you failed miserably because Job's faith hasn't wavered in the slightest. But Satan is always ready with a reply. And so in verse 4, he says, skin for skin. There's a lot of ways that that could be interpreted, but I think Satan is saying, look, God, all that I have done so far is just skin deep. All I've done so far is I've just scratched the the surface here, but, but God, if you would take your restriction away from me, if you would actually let me touch his flesh and let me touch his bones, let me touch his body, let me have Adam, then, God, you will see his real character will come out. Then, for sure, this time, Job will curse you to your face. So in verse 6, God agrees to the second testing of Job, and once again, he puts restrictions on him. He says he's in your hands, his body is in your hands, but don't kill him. Now, as many have pointed out, this was not necessarily a mercy here that the Lord said, do not kill him, because by the time we get to chapter 3, Job is in so much pain that he is going to be wishing that he had never been born. And so Job not dying is actually part of the test. 
having to live with the intense pain that was about to come upon him. Because in verse 7, it says that these painful boils covered him from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. We, we use a similar expression today, right? We say that he was covered in them from head to toe. They're all over his body. He had these painful spots. We don't know whether they were boils or, or ulcers or some other type of skin condition, but they were painful. They were all over him. And And then verse 8 is one of the saddest pictures of a man in all of the Bible. Here is Job, formerly the greatest man in all the East. And he walks out and sits down on a pile of ashes. This ash pile would have been outside the city, outside the city gates. It would have been basically the city dump where the people would take their trash and, and burn it. It's where lepers would go to live. And so here is Job sitting down in a pile of trash, probably because that's what he felt like. A discarded human piece of trash. And you can picture him sitting there, and the verse says he takes a a little piece of pottery, a broken shard of pottery, and he begins to use it to scrape himself, maybe to stop it from itching, or maybe to relieve the inflammation and to release the poison. It was in those boils. A sadder picture of a man's life you will not see. And one day, he went from riches to rags. All his wealth was gone. And one day, he went from a full house to an empty house. All his family was gone. And then he went from being healthy to being covered in painful sores. His health was gone. Again, Job is an extreme example, maybe the most extreme example ever of a good man, of a righteous man who has very bad things happen to him. And next time we're going to kind of camp out on, on how Job responded to all of this and how we can respond when we experience suffering in our life. But, but today, in the few minutes that we have left, I just want to talk about the fact that we live in a world where suffering like this happens. And even if Job is not yet asking the question, we want to ask it for him, don't we? We want to ask, why? Right? Why would God allow all of this suffering to happen to this man? Why do bad things happen to good people? I know that there are probably some of you who are maybe even questioning the way that that question is, is worded, because you know that in one sense... Biblically speaking, there aren't any good people, right? We're all sinners. Job was a sinner, and so are we. And and according to Romans, what we deserve because of our sin is is eternal death. And, And so you could say that for Job, because he was a sinner, he actually deserved worse than what happened to him. And while on one level that would be true, that isn't actually the way this book answers the question. That, that isn't the line of thinking that this book calls us to walk down. Yes, Job isn't perfect, but he is presented to us in this book by God as a genuinely righteous, holy, godly man. He's presented to us in this book as having things happen to him which he did not deserve to have happen to him. In fact, God himself says that. He says that all of this happened without a cause. There was no reason for it other than to silence the blasphemy of Satan and to prove him wrong in what he was saying about Job's 
faith. And, and so the message of Job is, is not one where we say, well, he should have had worse happen to him anyway. No, when we read Job, we're reading the story of an innocent, suffering servant of God. And, and for some people, this raises all kinds of intellectual and philosophical questions. Many times these questions are grouped together and they are referred to as the problem of evil. The problem of evil in its simplest form is that God is good, if God is good, and if God is all-powerful, then why does evil still exist? Right? If God is, is, is good, if he's all good, then he wouldn't want evil to exist. And, and if God is all-powerful, well, then he could stop evil from existing. And so if both of those things are true, then why do we still have evil at all? And maybe there are some of you who have wrestled with that intellectually or philosophically. Maybe you're wrestling with it right now. And, and the truth of the matter is the book of Job doesn't give a simple answer to that question because it's not a simple question. But I think what Job does do is it gets us to begin thinking about suffering, maybe in a deeper way than we have thought about it before. And when we back up the camera lens and when we look at the whole of the Bible, there are some things, some things, that we know for sure about suffering. And number one, we know that part of the reason that evil and suffering exist is that God made us free. That he made us capable of making real choices that have real consequences. That when God created Adam and Eve, he set them in a perfect environment, in a perfect garden, and he gave them the power to make choices, and he gave them free reign to eat of any tree that they wanted to eat in the garden except for one. Of course, we know the choice that they ended up making. It's the same choice that all of us have ended up making. And God knew they would make that sinful choice before he ever created us. And yet in order to create free creatures who could freely choose to worship him and freely choose to love him and freely choose to serve him, he had to create us with the power to freely walk away from him and rebel against him. And St. Augustine famously said that even a runaway horse is better than a stone. It cannot possibly run away because it cannot choose to do so. And of course, we know that the evil and suffering that does exist in this world comes from all of those runaway horses. Runaway demons and runaway men and runaway women who are living in rebellion against the Lord. And so we know that. We know that that's a big part of the reason why suffering exists. We also know, of course, that God never does what is evil and is not to be blamed for the evil that takes place. Though God is sovereign over all, though he is able to work in and through evil choices to bring about his good plan, we see that even in the book of Job, God is not to blame for the evil choices that we make. We are responsible, moral agents, and we are to blame when we decide to do evil things. Now, maybe we hear that, though, and we, we begin to think about, well, what about the evil in this world that, that doesn't seem like it's the result of any man's choice? What, what about the evil of, of natural disasters, like the hurricane that we just witnessed, like tornadoes, like tsunamis? And yet, as difficult as it is for us to understand, Romans 8 tells us that in some way, even creation itself is in bondage because of sin, 
that even creation itself, even the natural world is broken, and that brokenness traces its way all the way back to a moral choice that was made in the garden. That the world is marred and the world is broken, that it is not the way that God intended it to be. It is marred by sin, but one day in the world to come, that will not be so. And we know part of the reason why suffering exist in the world. We also know some of the reasons why God allows suffering to come into our individual lives, because we read about it in other places in the Bible. We know one of the reasons that suffering is allowed to happen in our life is is as a natural consequence to our sin. As it says in Galatians 6, whatever a man sows, he reaps. That is the way that God has created the world. And sometimes when we suffer, we need to be honest enough to admit we are simply reaping what we have sown. We are getting what we deserve. But the book of Job teaches us that is not always what is taking place. We know that particularly for believers, God allows suffering to come into our life in order to discipline us and to train us. We see that in Hebrews chapter 12, that that God uses suffering to, to discipline us, to train us in righteousness. Closely related to that, we know that God uses suffering in our life to create Christ-like character in our life. We read about that in the book of James where it says, when a trial comes upon you, to rejoice because God is using that trial in your life to develop godly patience, to make us more like Jesus. We also know that part of why we suffer is so that we will be able to comfort others in their suffering. 2 Corinthians 1 teaches us that, that when we suffer, he wants us to pass along that comfort that we receive from God to others who need it later. And we also know that sometimes suffering has nothing to do with our sin at all, but it is simply for God's glory. The story of the man who was born blind in John chapter 9 is a great example of that. People came up to Jesus and they, they looked at this blind man and they said, who sinned, Jesus? Did this man sin or, or did his parents sin? Because somebody sinned that this man was born blind like this. And Jesus' answer probably shocked them. He said, nobody sinned. That this wasn't, that didn't mean that nobody sinned, but he's saying this was not because of sin. It wasn't because of his sin. It wasn't because of his parents' sin. He said he was born this way for the glory of God. And in that moment, Jesus reached out his hand and healed that man, and the glory of God was on display. And we also know that sometimes what God is doing in our life is similar to what he was doing in Job's life. Sometimes we suffer not because we've done something wrong, but because God desires to test us, because God desires to put our faith on display for all to see. Again, Job did not suffer because he was a big sinner. Job suffered because he was so righteous and because God knew that even if Job had nothing at all, that he would still choose to worship him and God wanted everyone in the universe to know that about Job's faith. But remember, we know that. We, we know that's what God was doing with Job. But Job didn't know that. Job had no idea. And we have to confess that even after all those biblical reasons for suffering that I have just listed off, we have to be honest enough to admit there is still a lot about suffering that we don't understand. Very often we will find ourselves in life in the dark, where Job was, feeling like we're taking one punch after the other and we have no idea why. That's one of the main truths that the book of Job 
teaches us. Job teaches us that we will not know this side of heaven the exact reason for much of the suffering that we experience in this life. And I think for most of us, suffering is not primarily an intellectual or a philosophical problem. It, it is a deeply personal matter. Because when you hear the word suffering, you feel it. And when you hear the word suffering, you have experience. You have been through it. And maybe that suffering has left some pretty deep wounds and some pretty deep scars in your life because of things that you have been through. Maybe you have been through the loss of a child or the loss of a parent or a spouse or a friend. Maybe you, yourself, or someone that you love very much has, has experienced the pain of, of cancer, or Alzheimer's, or some other terrible disease, and you've suffered with that or suffered along with someone with that. Maybe you've suffered abuse at the hands of someone that you have trusted. I don't know all of the ways that, that you have suffered in this life, but I do know that we have all suffered because suffering is a part of the human experience in this broken, fallen world that we live in, and I pray that God will use this series through the book of Job over the next several weeks to bring his comfort to bear in your life, not, not in a way that would remove you from all suffering, because that won't happen until God removes us from this world, but in a way that would bring a comfort to know that God walks with us through whatever suffering we encounter. That the, the one who can reach out his hands to us and begin to heal our scars is someone who himself was scarred. And that's a final foundational truth I want us to hear today about suffering. We have all suffered in some way. And the God that we can trust our suffering to is a God who has suffered for us. We said that Job is the story of an innocent, suffering servant of God. But I love how one person put it. Job is like a first draft of the gospel story that God has given us to read. Because if Job is the story of bad things happening to a very good person, there would come one after Job for whom that would be even more true. There would come one after Job who was an even better person than Job, who was indeed a perfect person, who wouldn't just have bad things happen to him, but would have all of the evil in the universe laid at his feet. And all of the punishment that that evil deserved poured on his head as he hung on the cross and suffered and died for us all. Jesus is the ultimate, innocent, suffering servant of God. And at the cross, at the cross of Jesus Christ, is God's final answer to all of our suffering. God is not standing aloof. He is not standing off to the side somewhere while we suffer and watching without interest or without care. Our God has entered into our suffering because Jesus was a man of sorrows who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And by his stripes, we are healed. And we can trust all of our suffering to this one who has suffered with us and for us.
Father, I thank you for your goodness in our life, the goodness that we know is true, Father, even when our circumstances are not good. Even when we are in the dark, even when we don't understand, like Job, what is happening to us and why it seems like one blow is falling on our head after the next, Father, even then our eyes are upon you. And we look to you, Father. We know you are sovereign. We know you're on the throne. We know that you have a plan and a purpose in our life. And we thank you, Father, that you have not stayed away and stayed apart from our suffering, but that you entered it. That you yourself have suffered. And you have suffered what you did not deserve. Though Jesus, your son, knew no sin, he became sin for us. That we could have his righteousness. And so, Father, we thank you today for this perfect, sinless, suffering sermon that you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.